BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. It is the last podcast of the season with my good friend, Miles Simmons of NBC Sports. Miles, we're going to have a good time today. As you can see, I am not uh, in my normal lair in Brooklyn. I'm actually in Berkeley, California, where my daughter and her wife uh, live. And we had a really fun time here. My daughter graduated from grad school at Cal on Sunday and we got to see uh, grandson Freddie's Little League game on Friday night. Uh, so uh, it's really been a nice little uh, long weekend headed back to the East Coast later today. But uh, how you doing, Miles? I'm doing well, Peter. Not as good as you, though, man. That sounds like an awesome weekend, man. Not only graduation. I mean, awesome. congratulations on that, first of all. But, I mean, to see your grandson get to play baseball, I'm sure that was that was pretty yeah. special for you, I'm sure. It was fun. And and last night, we took him to the Giants game. Oh, nice. And I think he was less uh, – he was, he was less into, you know, sort of the game itself and more into me explaining – so Freddie is six and a half and I was explaining Bryce Harper to him and sort of, you know, it was giants Phillies. And I was explaining the two greatest things that happened were first of all, when I explained to Freddie that uh, Bryce Harper had, you know, been in a fight and he was kind of a villain, you know, Freddie knows what a villain is and he just was, he could not get over that. But look at him. He sort of he looks like such a nice guy and everything. And I said, he is a nice guy, I'm sure. But a lot of people really don't love Bryce Harper. And so we were talking about that for two or three innings, made it through six innings of the game and had a great time. So it was all good. But the the the, the funniest thing of the evening was this was really cool, is Freddie basically asking when I told him there you know, he saw the P on the uniform and the P on their hat and everything. And he goes, he goes, but it's, it's Philadelphia. Isn't that an F? I said, no, no, no. P H is the same sound as F. So anyway, that was kind of a, we had a cool, cool evening at, at the ball game. So that was fun. So anyway, this is our last podcast of the season and we will resume in early August, when I'm on my training camp trip, 
uh, for the year, for the summer. Um, and so I thought all right, we're going to have a guest later on, uh, Sally Jenkins, the Washington Post columnist. Uh, she's got a new book coming out in June. And I really was fascinated to talk to Sally in general because she's a great conversationalist, but about what we uh, civilians can learn from athletes and coaches that we can apply to our daily lives. So I think you'll enjoy my conversation uh, with Sally Jenkins. But I thought what we would do today is we would turn over the podcast to our podcast listeners, to readers of my column, and basically the our topics today on the podcast are going to be all reader experiencer related. So we got, I picked out 10 topics from the last few days that I've gotten emails on and uh, comments on, and that's what we're going to do. So Miles, I think a fun little way to do this would be, I'm going to introduce the topic and the person who asked the question or asked for comments. And then you and I will just bat it back and forth uh, for a couple of minutes. That's that sound. Okay. Sounds great to me. Good, good. All right. So let's start with this. Tim Wagner asks, why is the NFL putting a playoff game on Peacock? And for those of you who missed this announcement, Peacock, which is, part of the NBC family, obviously. It's NBC's streaming uh, uh, platform. Uh, won the rights to air a wild card playoff game on Saturday evening of wild card weekend. And the way it'll work is NBC will have a game at 4.30 on wild card weekend. That will be on NBC. And then that will lead into either an 8.15 or 8.30 game that evening, uh, a wild card game that evening on Peacock. And Miles, I think the way I would answer this is I totally understand people who view this as a greed move by the NFL. Another way to put, uh, you know, I've seen reports uh, of $110 million in the NFL's pockets and to enrich every team by $3 million. And I get the fact that there are going to be some people who want to watch this game who won't be able to watch it. There will be others who will say, well, I guess I should, uh, you know, get Peacock, um, you know, the way I get Netflix, the way I get Apple TV, whatever, Hulu right now. So I think what is I think this is a larger issue than being an NFL money grab. The issue is, I think the NFL is going to use the next 10 years of their media deals to get people used to streaming their games. It's no longer going to be only uh, all over the air television because more and more and more people are cutting the cable and are now just literally subscribing to streaming services. I don't know how you see it. What's your view of it? 
Well, I, I think you're, it's exactly that. It's the same reason why it's YouTube slash YouTube TV carrying Sunday ticket now yeah. instead of direct TV. And, and because I think a lot of people, myself included, were already using direct TV streaming service for Sunday ticket so that you can watch all of the games. And so now you've got YouTube and YouTube TV as that partner first of all, which I think is going to make the experience that much better because they have the experience in streaming. And yeah, I, I suppose you could call me a company man for saying this, but Peacock yeah. has experience in doing live sports. We have a lot of experience in doing live sports. And so what you're taking really is essentially is an NBC broadcast and you're putting it on Peacock and you are having people come to it. And so it's the same kind of thing that's going to happen. There's a Bills-Chargers game later on in the season that is going to also be available exclusively on Peacock, and I guess you could kind of think of that as sort of a dry run for that playoff game. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is inherently true. This is just what the wave of the future is. I mean, as somebody who does not subscribe to any cable service, I mean, I have YouTube TV because there's no reason to have cable, but I still need to watch live TV when it comes to sports or different other things that I like watching, right? So that is one of the reasons why I think that this is something that's kind of inevitable, but it's the NFL also kind of gradually making that shift because it's going to happen anyway, right? And so I think it's just something that we've all got to kind of embrace. Yeah, it's, I understand people who have their cable package at home and already pay whatever $67 a month for, you know, to get all the games on both ESPN and on Fox and CBS and, and NBC. And, and they're already missing games because they don't want to get on Amazon prime. And I get it. I totally get it, but this is the future and it's not going to, it's it's going to be one of these things that when you see the numbers of people who like formerly were cable TV households, I think mm-hmm. it's gone from like 110 million down to maybe 50 million now, but it's been cut in half yeah. over the last, say, five years or so. And so leagues like the NFL are basically looking at this and saying, listen, we didn't create this environment, but we have to live in this environment. Mm -hmm. And you may think, oh my God, money grab. And I totally get it. And in essence, it is a way for them to make more money about it. But the fact is that all leagues are going to be going to this kind of direct-to-consumer streaming uh, than... uh, Maybe we anticipated 10 years ago, but that is what is happening in this world. And look, Miles said it right. December 23rd, uh, the Chargers and the Bills will play a game on Peacock that will be available other than in the home markets in Buffalo and in uh, in L.A. Other than in the home markets, you're going to have to uh, get Peacock or I think uh, NFL Plus in order to be able to watch those games. But but anyway, uh, really, probably enough on that. I just wanted to explain to people who may not see this in a long-term media strategy way yes. that 
essentially that's what this is. It's long-term media strategy. Okay. Kevin Johnson asks, my question is, what are your thoughts about two teams, the Rams and the Niners, each having to play four teams coming off their buys during the regular season? Doesn't that make for an un- un- an unfair competitive balance? Well, okay, Kevin. So I noticed, and I I noted the other day. I read in Mike Reese's column because I I don't I do get into the schedule and the logistics of it. But Mike Reese, uh, who covers the Patriots uh, for ESPN.com, wrote that the Patriots this year will face no teams coming off their buys, which I found interesting because that's almost, I think most often that stuff has happened the stance. Okay, and I'm going to explain to you what I think after covering the schedule a lot for the last 10 years. Yeah, And that is that, The NFL has a lot to think about when it puts the schedule together. You know, who is going to be on a three-game road trip? Who's going to be on in prime time? All this other stuff. This is one of those things that I think fans probably think is incredibly unjust. But quite honestly, the NFL just cannot solve every problem. Do I like it? No, I don't like it. Do I think it's ultimately fair? Not really. But I don't think it's anything that the NFL really puts a high priority on when they're putting their schedule together. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with that. I mean, at a certain point, it's kind of, well, yeah, it might happen, but the NFL probably doesn't care all that much. I mean, I think that to a certain extent where you're saying, oh man, maybe there are some competitive balance issues. At least if that's the case for two teams, there are two teams in the same division. Right. And so you're at least having it in that way. But yeah, I think what you said is correct. I mean, there are so many logistical issues that the NFL has to solve between 32 teams. You're playing what five international games this year. You know, you've got teams that are playing you know different divisions and all that. Seattle's always got the toughest travel schedule of any team because they are so gosh darn far away in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. So, I mean, they're just... There's only so much that you can solve in yeah. issues in a schedule while also creating a very compelling schedule that puts the best games on in prime time. The best teams get featured here and there and whatnot. So this is, I guess, just one of those kind of unintended consequences that we all just have to live with. All right, Miles, number three, Brandon Herbert asks, can you settle this once and for all for all Texans fans? Did the Texans view the trade up to number three from number 12 as a package deal for both C.J. Stroud and Will Anderson? Okay, look, I've written about this twice. I wrote about this right after the draft, and then I wrote about it uh, the uh, a week later because there was so much kind of hue and cry on this issue. Okay, and I'm just going to explain to you what my view is on this. and. I know there are some people, including I read Mike Lombardi views that the trade up to number three was basically a trade up for C.J. Stroud. And and other people have said the same thing. And look, I don't buy it for a second. They drafted <laughs> They drafted C.J. Stroud second. And Nick Casario, the general manager of the Texans, told me the day after picking Will Anderson number three. 
told me that there was still work to do when he got on the phone with Monty Austin Fort, the general manager of the Arizona Cardinals. And Albert Breer raised this uh, at the MMQB that I thought was really a very smart view of it in his eyes. Look, there's no telling. What if Detroit at number six was madly in love with Will Anderson and allowed Houston to only trade down to number six instead of number 12 uh, and get and get rich off that deal once, uh, you know, once Houston was on the clock at number three. So Mm. there was no guarantee they Absolutely had preliminary discussions before this. And I'm sure that both sides knew basically what they could have gotten. But quite honestly, uh, and I'm, I'm going to read you. I, I just I just called this up. I'm going to read you a quote from Nick Casario to me the day after the draft. I said, man, that was a lot trading a one and a three next year. He said, And he said to me, quote, in the end, you accumulate assets and then you use them at your disposal. And Casario has been very, very clear that he believes that what Will Anderson can bring to this team as a player and as a leader to build around is something that they thought was very much worth it. And look, I don't happen to agree. I think it's a vast overpayment for him, but we'll see. Willie Anderson has it in his hands, but he's got to be a great player now for, uh, you know, for the Texans to be getting a good deal in drafting Willie Anderson number three. Yeah, look, if Will Anderson and C.J. Stroud both turn out to be great players or at least even good to, you know, above average to good to very good players and the Texans are competing for playoff spots and whatnot, then yeah, you're going to say that this trade was worth it. If they don't, then it's not. And people get fired and then you move on to the next regime. And I mean, that's that's just kind of the way football works. And I guess I'm being a little too simplistic about it. But you can think of it, I mean, if you want, right, as, a, okay, this is a package deal because they were able to move up and now they got these two cornerstone players in theory, whatnot. Like, that's, that's something you can think of if it makes you feel better, if it helps you sleep at night. But at the end of the day, if these two players don't work out, then that's going to mean that your your coach is going to be gone probably eventually, and your yep. GM is not going to be there for very long. So like that's just it's just the way football works. If it if the picks work out, people say employed. If they don't work out, people don't. <laughs> yeah, I I noticed right before we went on that I mean the NBA I think is crazy. Uh, oh, Doc man. Rivers got fired. Yeah, uh, you know as you know an hour before we recorded this pod i guess or very soon something like that and i just thought to myself hmm doc rivers one of the most successful coaches of all time in the nba got fired because jason tatum played out of his mind (laughs) you know and uh, you know look i don't watch a lot of nba i watched that game and miles all i can say is has anybody made as many contested shots in a huge game seven as Jason Tatum made in that game? How incredible a game was that 
Jason it, Tatum. It, it was phenomenal. And I guess we're not really a basketball podcast, but I, I follow the NBA playoffs very closely. And they look, Doc Rivers got fired because they didn't win game six and they allowed Jason Tatum to get hot late in that fourth quarter. When you have an opportunity to close out a series at home, you have to close out the series yeah. at home. And so then you go on the road to the Boston Garden and oh my goodness, Jason Tatum has the game seven of his life, right? <laughs> that was amazing. It was incredible. Steph has 50 a couple weeks ago in a game seven and that record's wiped out like two weeks later. So yeah, NBA playoffs. You know what, was, what else was great about that? And because, I, you know, so look, I'm sitting here in Berkeley and we've got a couple hours and I said, hey, let's put this basketball game on. Freddie loves basketball, not necessarily to watch it. And and by the end of it, he was saying, Jason Tatum is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but anyway, that was uh, that was really, really an interesting event. But I, I I understand the thing about Doc Rivers. But, you know, and then the, the Phoenix coach gets fired Mind because evidently out. there's you know, there's almost a Dan Snyder kind of hands on owner now in Phoenix and, you know, who wants to put his fingerprints all over it. And I don't know, Miles, I, I am a little bit, when I look at the NFL, I'm a little bit happier watching the NFL because I think in the NFL owners, for the most part, for the most part, mm-hmm. owners own and coaches coach. Yes, that's true for the most yeah. part. But then you do see situations like, Houston, where they start firing people after one year and then they fire another person after one year. And then finally, well, the Houston firings were absolutely outrageous, in my yes. opinion, back to back years. And look, Lovey Smith wins two of his last three. He gets fired. And I doubt that anybody in the organization said, well, he got fired because he beat. He won a meaningless game and cost us the first pick in the draft. That's not it. What I am outraged by and what I was outraged by with Lovey Smith is don't you want a coach who's going to have your team playing its rear end off in an absolutely meaningless game at the yes. end of a season? We yes. celebrate Dan Campbell for that. Yes. Day in Green Bay. And we fire uh, we fire Lovey Smith for it. It's no. it, to me, that was that was idiocy. Anyway, you you want your coach to have your team ready to play. He did. They won a, a a great game. They don't. They're not playing. And I understand. Everybody said, "Oh my God, you can't win that game." Why? Why? Why can't you win that game? I understand as a fan, you want the first pick in the draft. But do I want a coach pulling people out and saying? Uh, don't try or let's play practice squad guys who are going to get beat. No, I want a guy. I want my coach to work with his players to win every game they can. And after that, the chips will fall where they may. I totally agree with you. And I don't know that the Texans are really any worse for wear for drafting CJ Stroud instead of Bryce Young. I mean, who knows if they had the number one, overall they might've gone with CJ Stroud anyway. So yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. All right. Listen, Miles, the next five questions we're going to get to. uh, They're all about my rankings of the teams, one to 32. Yes. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on each one, but I do 
want to explain a couple of things. So let's start with that. Okay. Melazar asks, I don't know if that's a first name, last name, whatever. Melazar asks, any preseason power ranking that does not have the current Super Bowl champions as number one is just clickbait. Ooh. All right. Melazar, I will answer that by just saying, would you like me to just simply rank the teams? in the order that they finished last season. Does that ever happen? Does one season, uh, has it ever happened that the teams in the next season have the exact same records, same teams make the playoffs, same everything? So why would you think that it's clickbait that I picked the Philadelphia Eagles one and the Kansas City Chiefs two? Why? I, I'm 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 mind boggled by that, but this is not a a confirmation of the previous season. This is looking ahead to the next season. Miles, the Chiefs lost Juju Smith Schuster, Orlando Brown, two extremely key offensive contributors, including yeah. your left tackle, right? Frank Clark probably not going to be back either, though he's still in the open market. So. Things change every single year, and I don't think it's very insulting at all to have the Chiefs <laughs> at number two. Yeah, yeah, I find that kind of humorous. Yeah. Okay, the next question. Uh, it, it's a question from a reader who says, you have the Falcons winning the NFC South? <sighs> Why, yes, I do. Is there a team in the NFC South that you absolutely love? Is there a team in the NFC South that you think is absolutely can't miss and is going to roll over everybody? And I'm just going to tell you why I happen to really like the Atlanta Falcons and why, in my opinion, the NFL chose to put four teams not on in prime time this year. One of them is the Atlanta Falcons. That is a big miss. And I'll tell you why. Look, we all know there's question marks. Nobody knows if Desmond Ritter is going to be the guy. I mean, it could be that Taylor Heineke will be the quarterback of this team by week eight. I don't know. But let's just talk about the most interesting group of skill players in the NFL. And I mean the entire NFL. All right, let's start at the receiver position. Drake London, last year's first round pick. Uh and and they're 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 just okay after that. I happen to be a big Mac Hollins fan. We're gonna see Mac Hollins uh get his opportunity to be a starting player uh for the Atlanta Falcons. And I think he's gonna play very, very well. I know that uh Josh McDaniels really liked him in Vegas last year. Then, okay, your slot receiver, if this guy can stay healthy and give 15 or 16 games, Scotty Miller, to me, is, is a really good uh, potential slot receiver who never had as much time as I thought he should in Tampa. Now, let's go to the tight ends. To me, Kyle Pitts, Jonu Smith, I don't know how you get a lot better one-two punch at tight end than that. And then... You got a returning 1,000 yard rusher who I voted as my uh, 
NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year in Tyler Algier. He's going to be joined by B. John Robinson. And B. John Robinson also is going to play some slot receiver uh, in Arthur Smith's offense. To me, I kind of like the Atlanta Falcons, and I really like the signings, maybe just for one year, of Calais Campbell and David Onyemata to bolster that defensive front. And I think the Falcons are going to be sneaky good. I just do. Like They could be. I mean, look, somebody's got to win that division, and no team, I think, is going to make a real serious run out of that division. But I would say that I kind of like the Panthers more than the Falcons because I really like the Panthers' defense. Yeah. I think it might be better um, under defensive coordinator Jiro Evero. And then on offense, I love the coaching staff. And so even though they have a rookie quarterback – I think that they also could be one of those sneaky teams that either wins the division or maybe gets a seven seed. The last thing I'll say about the Falcons, I think my guess is Matthew Bergeron, who was a kind of a speaking of sneaky, a sneaky fast riser up draft boards late. He was the second round pick of the Falcons. He's a, he's a, uh, he was a tackle who uh, grew up in Canada and was a late riser. Uh, he probably is going to win left guard. Um, and he's an important guy for this team because Desmond Ritter needs some time and he's not going to be good if he's being chased around a lot. So we'll see about that. But I, I'm, I'm more fascinated than not about uh, the uh, the Atlanta Falcons. Okay, let's go to uh, Louis Hard. Your list is trash. Defend it. Okay. Uh, I like that deep analytical take into my list. Um, I'm going to pick out one thing that probably most people thought is utterly preposterous, and that is Detroit being number six. Well, Every time I make one of these lists, I try to pick a team that I think by the end of the year is going to be better than everybody thought in May, June, and July. That team this year, and look, the NFL must think so too. You know, they put them on uh, in pri- they put them on nationally televised or in prime time four times, mm-hmm. which is a recent record anyway for the Detroit Lions. Um, and look, Louis, I understand that a lot of people are going to have some nits to pick with any list of the rankings of the teams in May. I'm not going to pick the regular finish from the previous year. And that's all there is to it. The one other thing about this list that I think you could maybe be critical of and and look, I didn't even think about this until I got a lot of reaction to it. I th- I found it. I thought it was really funny that people thought that I ranked the Green Bay Packers too high at twenty one. Hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> I mean, high. the twenty first team in the NFL is probably going to be seven and ten, yeah. maybe maybe eight and nine, but it's not going to be a playoff team. Right. Do you really think that 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 team with pretty good weaponry on offense 
and a defense that underachieved that should be better this year, I think anyway, mm-hmm. is not capable of winning seven games in a division that is not going to be great. I don't know. I I just that one really kind of surprised me a bit, Miles. Yeah, I mean, I thought that the Packers were very appropriately placed. May I mean, I I have a lot of faith in Matt Lafleur um, to continue to coach that team in a way that's going to have them set up for success. But you also have to think that, yeah, I mean, look, Jordan Love, while it may be his first year starting, it's not his first year in that offense, and it's not his first year in that program. And I think that right. that means. There really isn't much of an excuse for Jordan Love if he is not successful. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like right away, right away. You know what I mean? But if you don't see that he is a franchise-type quarterback by the end of the season, then the Packers are going to have to go in a different direction probably in 2024. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Okay, two more about the schedule. This is from Bill. Philly didn't beat anybody last season. Very soft schedule, got lucky against San Francisco, and lost the Super Bowl. In other words, why are they number one? I I guess, you know, when you say they didn't beat anybody last year, I I would say, well, they they beat the Minnesota Vikings by 17. Mm -hmm. The Vikings won their division. Uh, They beat the Packers uh, when the Packers... After Thanksgiving, when the Packers had it going on, finally, uh, they they beat the Packers and scored 40 points on them. Yeah, uh, They uh, beat the New York Giants three times, the resurgent Giants. And again, they did not have a really tough schedule. I get it. I understand. You can only play the teams on your schedule. And yes, were they fortunate that the 49ers... Uh, crashed and burned at quarterback in the playoffs. Yes, they were. But all I can say is they played two playoff games before the Super Bowl, won those games by a combined 69 to 14, and then put up 35 points in the Super Bowl and lost to a very, very good team in Kansas City by a field goal. Yep. So I don't understand people saying that the Eagles didn't do anything. I I, I just, I, I'm mind boggled that the Eagles are somehow these underachievers, uh, you know, who didn't do anything last year. They didn't do yeah. anything last year. I, I I mean, crazy, crazy time. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like, did, did you watch the Super Bowl? I mean, if <laughs> Chiefs were the best team in the league and they won by three points and kind of barely did that, then what, what are we talking about here? I don't, I don't know. I mean, the Eagles were every bit matched up as good as the Chiefs. If you play that game 10 times, I mean, the Chiefs would probably win five and the Eagles might win five. That's the way yeah. I see it. Um, okay, last question about the schedule uh, comes from Tom of Reading, Pennsylvania. What I don't like about your rankings is is that they basically take the standings from last year and run them in order. You <laughs> usually take some chances. Why not this year? Well, I, I don't know what to say about that. Other other than, yes, I do have the top teams in each conference back highly rated. Kansas City, Buffalo, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, San Francisco. I, I, I've I, got them back. You're, you're right about that. And I know that all five of them are not going to be great, and I'll probably be wrong about quite a few. However, 
you know, the, the, the Vikings won 13 games last year. I have them ranked 14th. The, uh, the Baltimore Ravens were just very iffy last year. Uh, and I have them ranked seventh. Uh, the Miami Dolphins uh, were pretty iffy, especially down the stretch. I have them ranked eighth. The Jets are ninth. It, it, I don't know. And look, I have Tampa Bay 31. And look, there are going to be a few things in here that totally go off the rails. And I get it. But I don't, I disagree that I just ran the standings again. So anyway, to each his own uh, looking at this. Miles, we got two more quick questions uh, before we get to Sally Jenkins. Um, this tsunami is from Tom Meredith of Milford, Delaware. The tsunami of sports betting, okay, is really bothering Tom, and he wonders what is going to happen and what sort of impact it's going to have on professional sports. All right, Tom, I I am not a fan of the tsunami of sports betting. I think it's dangerous. I think 10 years from now, we are going to have, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic. I think we're going to have rehab centers with people trying to get off gambling. Uh, and I don't know, I don't really understand why in this country we are going to contribute to that with this insatiable, endless glut of people and companies trying to make money off sports gambling. And I realize that you can't stand in the way of it. It is legal. I just weep a little bit for the future of sports and the future of sports fans, because I think a lot of people are going to be ruined. I'll say it uh, by sports gambling, because I think it's going to be pervasive and it's going to be overwhelming. I, I think it is already pervasive and I think it is already overwhelming. I mean, you can't really watch a sporting event anymore without seeing advertisements for various sports betting companies. And even here in California, where it is not legal to have sports betting, you still have those commercials because they are national um, commercials. I mean, I, I, I don't really do it. I don't particularly like losing my money. So like, I, you know, I like spending it on things like concert tickets and things like that. So sports betting doesn't necessarily appeal to me, but it does. I know add an element to the game. Um, like when I'm talking to my friends, we talk about lines and things on the group chat and whatnot. And so I, I hope that, people do it responsibly and and i don't disagree with you peter that there are probably gonna be some sort of centers where people are gonna have to um take things into account and you know wean themselves off of sports betting so i mean i guess i would say if you're struggling with it right now call 1-800-GAMBLER because that is one of these gambling helplines that you can turn to but at the same time it, you're right that it's sort of one of these trains where you're not really going to stop it at this point unless there is some sort of real, real big crisis. And I don't know that we've reached that point yet. Yeah, it's it's just really bothersome. Um, final question. <laughs> it's from Rick Zucker of Seattle. 
Okay. We do not need 52 weeks a year of football. If not for your column, I would not even be aware of the draft, let alone the schedule. And, you know, it went on. Rick basically says we all ought to have lives. And I think I picked that question to answer because I'm really getting to that point where, you know, after covering the NFL, entering my 40th year covering it, I more than ever, man, I just need the off season <laughs> because I just, it's hard to do nothing but think about football and the way the NFL has been. I tell people this and it's like, I'm talking about the 1830s because I tell people that, Hey, did you know that my first year covering the NFL in Cincinnati for the Cincinnati Inquirer, I covered the Bengals 1984. Did you know that in the off season I wrote about the Reds and, <laughs> uh, and, and I covered some college basketball after the season. And there was one weekend that year that on Friday night before a Bengals game, I covered a high school football game because high school football was religion in Cincinnati. And so it, Sometimes I just think, man, we need a little bit of perspective here. And uh, but anyway, it is what it is, as the immortal Bill Belichick says. And I I really like the game a lot. I just think it's okay if on May 16th we want to say, hey, you know what? Let's do something else this week. Let's go read a book. Let's go do, let's just go do something else. And I kind of wish for that for all of us. I don't disagree with you, Peter. I I like this time of year in some ways because there's uh, not the pressure of wins and losses every single week. And so you get guys kind of talking a little more extemporaneously and they actually say more of what they think, at least like OTAs in the off season program is what I'm thinking about. And then we get to mini camps in June and then, we kind of like get to take a little bit of a vacation for three ish weeks. Like that's kind of the only real actual dead period in the NFL. So, I mean, on the one hand, like, yes, I totally agree with you. I think that this is good that it's a slow time. Go read a book, go do something else. But on the other hand, the fact that there's 52 weeks worth of interest in the NFL keeps me employed. So I kind (laughs) of like that too. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Miles, 
I can't thank you enough for everything you've brought to the podcast uh, this past year. And really, I I do want to say you're really utter selflessness and always being there for me. And I just wanted to say thank you for everything you've done this year. Oh, it's certainly my pleasure. It has been an absolute blast and an absolute thrill to be able to do this with you. So thank you for saying that. Sure, Miles. Okay, so let's get to our guest, Sally Jenkins, 25-year sports columnist, four times the sports columnist of the year in the United States. Uh, If you want to get a good pulse of what's happening in the District of Columbia with the sports teams, got to read Sally Jenkins. She's written a new book called The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. I caught up with her last week. And I found it really, really interesting talking to Sally about what sports and particularly coaches and athletes really can bring to our own lives, no matter what kind of job you do. Here's my conversation with Sally Jenkins. Back on the podcast, so happy to be joined today by Sally Jenkins. Many of you know the great work of Sally Jenkins. She's a longtime sports columnist and formerly a feature writer at the Washington Post, has done fantastic work. She's been named the sports columnist of the year four times by the Associated Press and is an absolute must read for me and for almost everyone in our business. And she's written a book, it's called The Right Call, What Sports Teaches Us About Work and Life. And I think one of the interesting things, when I first saw the publicity material for this book, I said, wow, there's some really interesting people. What Sally has done, and I'm going to let her explain this, what Sally has done is basically taken some great coaches and great athletes and had them explain about what they do and how they work can be applied to our own lives to improve our own lives, our preparation, our work ethic, everything. And so I want to get into that, but Sally, thanks. And I I find your, your sort of... Uh, your your panel of experts, shall we say, you know, Bill Belichick, Steve Kerr, Pat Summit, which is it's fantastic that obviously the late Pat Summit that you got uh, enough wisdom from from Pat before she died. And I know that you were close to her, uh, you know, for a large part of both of your lives. Peyton Manning, Jill Ellis, the U.S. women's soccer coach. Michael Phelps, Andre Agassi, just really a, a an eclectic but fascinating group of people who could teach us something about how sports uh, are, you know, give us some really good lessons for life. So give me your your thought about when the light bulb went off for you, Sally, and when you thought, I, I've got a lot of knowledge about not just what good coaches and athletes these are, but I've got some really good knowledge that I think can apply to John Q. Public in whatever job he has. 
you know, the light bulb really went on when I, I realized that, that all these athletes and coaches that uh, we've covered over the years um, were beginning to really influence me and how I was going about my own work. And, uh, you know, from Peyton Manning to Pat Summit to the big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, it's a and Steph Curry. It's a, you know, really broad cross section of people I've been able to cover. And I just realized that I was starting to become more methodical, more disciplined, and sort of had quietly, without even realizing it, incorporated some of their stuff into how I sports write. And and I thought, well, do all these people have something in common? Is there a commonality in how they all approach their job? And the answer is yes. And and the answer is that you you can borrow from it. I mean, the $64,000 question for all of us is, can we really learn something from Peyton Manning or Tom Brady, or are they just there to be, uh, you know, to awe us uh, and to be entertainment? And the question is, we really underutilize them. And if we, th- I think if we thought about them more carefully, studied them a little bit more in depth and delineate um, what's important in their methods, the rest of us have a lot we can take from them uh, apart from sheer enjoyment and entertainment. So that's the aim of, of the book is is to really articulate some of the things that just crept up on me, you know. So let's let's talk about the individuals who you who you spoke with and dealt with and how they influenced you both in your life, in your writing. Um really curious about Bill Belichick because I, I remember a story Chris Sims told me once. He was a a uh, a grunt coach on Belichick's staff, I think for about 16 months. And he said, I always thought what really differentiated him from every other coach I'd ever been around is that to him, May 11th was exactly as important as October 11th. And every day he came to work was a day that he honestly thought, no matter what time of year it was, he honestly thought he could make his team better. And, you know, like, and his his whole point was, I don't know what exactly that means other than, to me, I always thought of Bill Belichick as this steely guy and everything. But once you actually work with him, you find out he's really a heck of a teacher. Yeah. And, you know, he imparts a lot of lessons. Give me your... Uh, Give me what you took from Bill Belichick. Well, it's funny you say that because one of the questions I asked Bill Belichick, the one time I really was able to interview him in depth, I said, you know, are you a teacher? Do you consider yourself a teacher? And he said, absolutely. He said, you know, you have to understand most of the people who come through here are young men just out of college who some of whom haven't really even managed their own affairs fully yet. Um, And so I think we underestimate the degree to which NFL coaches are teachers But the main thing I take from Bill Belichick is that preparation from any great coach, you know, from Bill Walsh, you know, name Vince Lombardi, they all do the same thing. What we think are their critical decisions in the heat have uh, their roots are in everything they did on Wednesday morning. You know, they don't make decisions off the cuff the way we think they do as spectators. They are deeply, deeply deliberated decisions uh, uh, based on work that was put in all week long. Uh, they do not trust to a fortunate jolt of inspiration. They're never nonchalant. Uh, 
And so that's the main thing I take, you know, the writer's culture is you breeze into the press box and you hope to be good that day on deadline. And, uh, and, you know, I just learned better over the years. I learned that people who are really, really great at what they do uh, started working at being great on Sunday on Wednesday. It's really interesting. You say that Tim Layden, a friend of both of ours, uh, one of the reasons he's become such a great, in my opinion, horse racing writer is that he can go to a Kentucky Derby and he's perfectly happy if any one of the 18 horses wins because he has been in the barn with every one of the jockeys and trainers and owners since Tuesday morning and he gets there at five in the morning. So that I, I think you're I think you're so correct in saying that preparation is so important. And look, we've all uh, because of our jobs. I mean, we understand the way this business is. Something might happen in the fourth quarter of a Washington Philadelphia game that totally tears every storyline you were thinking of asunder. And it's just none of it is any good anymore. And you do have to sometimes absolutely recreate everything. But, you know, it's probably the same thing for Bill Belichick. You know, in the fourth quarter when, you know, his team turns it over twice and all of a sudden, instead of being up by 10, he's down by four. Now, all of a sudden, he's got to totally rip everything up and and recreate. But if you're good at what you do, you understand exactly at that moment what you need to do. Well, his his fundamentals are, are are so good. You know, he he, you know, when everything is in flux, there's a baseline of quality there that he can draw on because of how he coaches that team. I mean, one of the things he said to me was, he said, "Look, you know, if you can't execute something without resistance in practice, you certainly can't execute it against resistance from a good competitor in a game." And so the, one of the things that separated the Patriots for years was that they actually practiced against more resistance day to day. They were willing to risk injury and willing to practice at a pace and in the face of a resistance against their first teamers. Um, and it was a separating uh, factor, I think. Um, and and the other thing that they did was they could execute without mistake uh, in the heat because they really practiced um a particularity uh, at, at certain things that they knew was going to really stand them in good stead. I mean, I, I, here's an example. It's not uh, another NFL example is Peyton Manning told me an absolutely fascinating story about how Tony Dungy once a week used to spray the footballs with garden hoses and toss them on the field and tell Peyton Manning and his center, Jeff Saturday to practice with the wet footballs. And Jeff Saturday said to Peyton, what's the deal with this? I mean, we play in a dome. You know, what's the point? And and Peyton kind of laughed and said, I don't know, Jeff, maybe they'll they'll they could be a hole in the roof someday. Well, that the year they made the Super Bowl, you know what happened in Miami. Yeah, like, they played the Super Bowl in the pouring rain. Absolute monsoon. Like, you know, Prince at the halftime show, everyone was afraid Prince was going to get electrocuted on stage because it's raining so heavily. But Peyton told me he woke up that morning, opened the curtain and looked outside and absolutely knew they had an edge because Dungy had made them practice with wet football so often. And in fact, the difference maker in that game was that Rex Grossman and the Chicago Bears fumbled the ball twice. They just didn't handle the wet football as well. Um, and and so that's one example of one of the stories uh, 
that's in the book that uh, was just really fun to hear about directly from a guy like Peyton Manning. Um, I'd never heard that story before. I didn't know Dungy had done I that. haven't either. Yeah. That's a great story. So to to basically get into the book a little bit, you got into uh, how preparation and how lessons from each one of these people uh, helped in conditioning, practice, discipline, uh, culture, resilience, uh, intention. And I wonder, as you now look at the book, what's the story in the book that you think is the best story? What's the story in the book that you love the most and that you knew when you were writing it? And maybe you knew when you first heard it, this is really going to resonate with hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, I, I there are so many great people in the book. Steve Kerr, I, you could listen to him for hours. Same with, with Peyton Manning or Tommy Amaker from Harvard. Um, I think the main thing that stands out to me is, you know, so many of those chapter titles, they're sort of buzzwords, right? Like culture, right? Like what is culture or conditioning? You know, what is conditioning? When you go to these people and say, explain to me on a granular level, like what this means, you know, what is practice? Everybody says practice, you know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall practice? You know, what is the right kind of practice? I mean, um, there's a thing called deliberate practice, which is very different from the way the rest of us practice. We practice guitar until we get kind of good at it. And then we put it aside. Peyton Manning told me, here's what he practiced, right? It was a very careful diagnostic process where they figured out where he was weak. One thing people don't remember about Peyton Manning is that his third year in the league, his overall career record was 32 and 32, and he was the league leader in interceptions. So Tony Dungy comes in, and one of the first things they say is, like, we've got to stop Peyton Manning from throwing so many interceptions. Well, the way they did that was before you can go out on the practice field and really work on that, you have to know where it's going wrong. And you have to find the fix. And so they went through all the tape of every interception he threw. But then Peyton said they went through a second tape. All the balls he threw that should have been intercepted but weren't because he got a little bit lucky. And then they went through a third tape, which was all the touchdown passes that he missed, like what should have been a touchdown, but for some reason he was inaccurate or makes the wrong throw, right? So then they looked for the commonalities in that. And one of the things they found was that when defensive linemen would dive at, at Manning, his feet would get a little jackhammery, like his feet would start moving. So they designed a drill. Dungy and Jim Caldwell designed a drill where they started throwing heavy sandbags at Manning's feet. And then they would make him complete the screen pass, even with sandbags flying at his feet, you know. So that's the type of thing that athletes work on, the granular detail of a weakness. The rest of us get a little bit good at something and plateau. And that's where we stay. Um, Steph Curry is working on his non-dominant foot, right? They get super specific at their weaknesses. Uh, And that was the most, those were the most fascinating stories. We're understanding that these guys are made and not born. Even a Peyton Manning that seems to be so genetically gifted, um, you know, understanding that he had profound weaknesses that required lots of like real hardcore work. I think that statement that you just made is profound in itself that, you know, Peyton Manning was not made. 
you know, the error was, I mean, he was not born with this. Yeah. He made himself into a great player. It's precisely the same with Tom Brady, precisely. And they were just going to outwork everybody. And there's a great, I think there's a great moral to that story, you know, for everybody. Sally, I want to ask you, in your time over the years with Pat Summit, what you took from her and what in this book is something that you hope people take from the ethos of Pat Summit? You know, uh, Pat told me something. This is in the book. I mean, Pat told me that uh, most people are afraid to go all in. Uh, you know, most people are afraid. My father had a saying. My dad used to tell me uh, a lot of people are afraid to win. And I never really quite understood what he meant by that um, until one day I went to Pat and I said, Pat, you know, my, my father says too many people are afraid to win. And but I don't know what he means by that. What does he mean by that? And she said, well, first of all, he's absolutely right. But she said what he means is that most people are afraid to say that's the best I can do. Right. Because, you know, a lot of us, we look we want to look cool. We want to look nonchalant. And like if you get beat or if you, you know, uh, if you don't perform great, well, it's because you just didn't quite care. You know, like, you know, it, it's OK. Right. The people who really, really reach the highest, most elite level or who make really not even don't even reach the highest level, but who make really large improvements in their lives are the people who really put it on the line and say, I really care about this. I'm going to work at it with an unembarrassed intensity and Pat's unembarrassed intensity her passion for her work, her willingness to make the tough call, whether it was the right call or the wrong call, her willingness to make a call, to invest herself completely and care as much as she cared about her job, you know, um, and say, I want to be really great at this, made a tremendous impression on me, particularly as a young writer and a young woman. And that's the main thing I, I took from her. It was an incredible gift. You know, the other person in here that, I really got a an interesting, I, I got kind of a kick out of because I would have no idea other than incredibly hard work. What what'd you take from Andre Agassi uh, to apply to anybody's job? What what does what what Andre Agassi give you in this book? You know what, what Andre gave me, and I covered him for a long, long time. I covered Andre from start to finish. I mean, I, I, I covered one of his first professional matches and then covered his last U.S. Open. So I really went kind of wall to wall with Andre. And what I took from Andre was the, the, uh, the, the possibility of real transformation. Um, Andre's career became a real act of will that he was considered very superficial. He had, uh, as he put it to me, his, uh, his his accomplishments did not meet his wealth. <laughs> I mean, he got big <laughs> endorsement deals early on before he had won a Grand Slam. And then he had to live up to all of that, right? And it was very, very hard. And it took him a long time to win his first Grand Slam. And he really had to teach himself how to become a, a, a professional. And what put him over the top and made him a champion was the determination to be a professional, win or lose, right? To, again, to work at his craft, to practice it, to work on his weaknesses. And if he didn't win, uh, then fine, right? But Andre is a guy who spent the early part of his career afraid to win, you know, afraid to go all in. Uh, and 
you know, he turned himself from like this little bird-like guy with a peroxided ponytail into a very shaved down, burly man who bore no resemblance to his early self. So I took from that that uh, that there's such a thing as self-fashioning, self-making. You know, he was a very self-made man. All of these champions are very high, as you just said, they're very highly self-made people. And that's where we really mistake them. Most people, I would think, would look at athletes and their drive to succeed and be great and say, well, that's not my job. I sell insurance in Kankakee, Illinois. What, what, what can I take from Peyton Manning? What can I take from Steve Kerr? What's your answer to that? You can take problem solving, you know, because you're going to be in crisis, right? You're going to be under pressure. And as Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer, uh, explained to me, I mean, he's one of the more fascinating uh, characters and in interviews in, in the book. Uh, Laird said, look, your body doesn't know what's stressing it, right? Like your body doesn't know if you're suffering anxiety because you're in the ocean facing a really large ocean swell, or if you're facing anxiety because you're giving a speech in a corporate boardroom in front of a group of people who don't respect surfers, right? <laughs> So that's a funny know, way to put it, really. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what he said. So so the fact of the matter is that we all have to deal with these pressures. We all have to deal with performance under pressure. And we all have to deal with, I mean, look, every job, no matter how much you love it, has facets of it that you don't really like to do or that you're not naturally suited to do. So what you can take from athletes is is how do you how do you grapple with that? You know, and it's a, a great example there's a big wave or like a race car driver, like Jimmy Johnson, you know, said, look, you, know, you can't drive 60 miles an hour and then get in a 200 mile per hour race car uh, and, and not be overwhelmed and overcome by anxieties, but you can condition yourself slowly over time to deal better with the anxiety and the stresses and the onrush of stimulus, right? Most of us practice, especially on the golf course, we practice in much more comfortable, easy, conditions, then we're going to have to meet every day under pressure, right? You go onto a driving range and you beat balls into the distance. And then you go on the golf course and you're really confused as to why you don't play as well on the golf course as you did on the range. Well, the answer is you're playing in completely different conditions. There's side hill lies, there's wind, there's, there's all kinds of different circumstances that you just didn't face on the driving range. We tend to live our lives that way quite a lot. We don't practice in the conditions that we're going to have to perform in. Um, Tom Brady's very eloquent about that in the book and, and among other people. And so that that's one of the main lessons I took is understanding, again, like Belichick said, um, working in the face of some resistance, you know, um, it's, it's as Laird said, it's not it's not the greats and the elites who have the most room for improvement. It's the rest of us. Right. Um, we have vast areas and room for improvement that we're not even aware of. Athletes really examine where they can improve, and they understand that the incremental 1% or 2% over time has an, a, an enormous compounding interest effect. Tom Brady gained something like four to seven RPMs on his ball at the end of his career because of all the work he did with Tom House on his mechanics year after right. year after year. I mean, you know, Peter, Tom Brady was a more accurate quarterback in the last four or five years than he was in his in his absolute prime. Well, the crazy thing about Brady is that if you look at his numbers and actual performance, 
he's better in his 40s than he was in his 20s. Absolutely. How is that humanly possible? I mean, I I again, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, yeah, because he was willing to he was willing to make the incremental progress. Like he just kind of kept working at it. He kept understanding his own body and his own mechanics better. He worked hard over the years with Tom House on his feet and understanding what makes for an accurate throw under pressure, like Peyton Manning with his feet. Um, and and so 1% a year really adds up, right, over time. So and don't, you Brady, think also, don't you think also that so many of the people, whether they're coaches or players, you know, they get better – when the lights are off, when, yes. when, you know, when nobody is watching and Scott Pioli, uh, formerly of the Patriots front office was, uh, said his favorite story about Brady is in his rookie year. It's, uh, it's in the off season. It's about nine thirty one Friday night. Pioli was working late. He gets in his car to go home and he notices that the lights are on over in the, uh, indoor facility their little practice bubble they had and he goes over he figures that somebody just left them on maybe you go turn off the lights and he's in there and he walks in there and there it's 9 30 at night and with sweat dripping off him one may friday night it's tom brady the rookie uh from michigan throwing footballs uh, a load of footballs into these nets that are positioned all over different areas of the field. And uh, Brady only said one thing to him. Hey, don't tell anybody you saw me here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, how do you, where does that motivation come from? You know, some people are motivated to do, to work that hard. And they're just, they don't have a, a high enough base of talent. He obviously had a high enough base of talent that that stuff really mattered. Well, I think, you know, I don't think anybody, including Tom Brady, was born with like the temperament. Uh, you know, like I don't think Tom Brady was born driven. Right. I think I think that drive all of the athletes I talk to say that it becomes like almost a self-perpetuating thing. You do something hard. You get rewarded for it. You see a little bit of improvement. So then that makes you crave it a little bit more. And yeah. so. That work ethic actually builds over time. They develop a tolerance for tedium and they develop a habit to the point where they're uncomfortable if they haven't practiced a lot. Um, I mean, Derek Jeter, there's a great guy in the book named Dana Cavalea, who was performance coach for the New York Yankees for years, who worked very closely with Derek Jeter. And, um, and he told me that Derek Jeter, for his entire career with the Yankees, never after a game went to bed um, you know, after every game, two hours after every baseball game, Derek Jeter was in bed. It never failed. He went to bed two hours after the finish of every ball game, no matter what, no matter where he was, no matter who they played, whether it was spring or October. Um, his consistency of habits just built up over time. And by the time he's done, he's just one of the most consistent ball players in history because his, he had such, he had developed such consistent habits. Right. Um, And so those become like Laird Hamilton told me, you start to crave good things instead of bad. Right. Um, And so that's the light bulb for them. That's the trick they learn. They're not born with it. They are willing to sort of experience discomfort for just long enough to get some reward out of it and some gratification out of it, and then turn it into a habit. I mean, 
you know, quite frankly, I think anyone can do that. The, 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 your ceiling, you know, is uncertain, of course. Um, but there's no question that you can you can acquire better habits if if you have the willingness to be a little bit uncomfortable. You know, comfort is not the only thing worth seeking is the big message I took from everybody in this book. Well, your your one statement that is going to stick with me uh, from our conversation here about, you know, developing good habits, develop, you know, great players in uh, their collective ethos, they develop a tolerance for tedium. Yeah. It's just a perfect, it's absolutely perfect because, hey, look, I'll never forget this Peyton Manning story. You got to hear this one. I'm the pool reporter for the pro football writers at the Super Bowl right before the one you're talking about, Chicago and Indianapolis. So after the game, after the Friday practice, Peyton Manning has 16 people come over and he's got 128 footballs he needs to scuff up and he needs to get ready to be game balls for the Colts when they're on offense in this game on Sunday. And so he is supervising these eight people playing catch and just throwing the ball as hard as they can into the ground. And so they do it over and over again, 45, 50, 55 minutes. And finally he goes over every ball, all 128 balls. And he holds each one and he grips each one and he presses each one. And if it's not ready, he throws it out and he tells them, do some more work on it. And I mean, there's like a cop from Davie, Florida. There's a security guy. There's a, uh, uh, you know, like three or four just equipment guys, a couple of coaches. But he does this for an hour after the Friday practice when I'm sure that everybody wants to do something Super Bowlish. But that to me, it always said everything about Peyton Manning that the hay was not in the barn till he felt the hay was in the yeah. barn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one, one, it's a great story. Uh, one thing Dana Cavalea said to me was, he said, you know, the, the, the great ones, uh, he said, athletes have a great insight. He said, they don't think about how it feels while they're doing it. They think about how it's going to feel when they're done. Right. And mm-hmm. I think, I think the rest of us tend to focus on like, wow, this doesn't, it doesn't feel great to work out. Like I hate how I feel right now. Athletes aren't thinking about that. They're thinking about how good it's going to feel like afterwards. And it's a, it's a significant mindset shift. Uh, you know, uh, and I'll tell you something else that, that they, they have real insight into is athletes deal better with failure than anyone I've ever known because they've all failed. I mean, they, every single one of them has, and my, arguably my favorite story in the book, and you will know this story because it, uh, I'm pretty sure you will know it. So Brian Dable, when he was still with the bills in training camp, uh, right at the start of training camp, it's an all team meeting for the bills. Uh, And he says, everybody in the room, stand up, every coach, every player stand up. And then he goes, any player in this room, uh, who wasn't drafted, sit down. Well, about a third of the room sits down because most NFL teams carry a lot of undrafted free agents, right? So a third of the room sits down. And then then he says, okay, anyone who's ever been cut, 
sit down. Another third of the room sits down. Anyone who's ever been traded or fired, sit down. Rest of the room is down, including all the coaches. There's one guy left standing. It's Josh Allen, the quarterback. (laughs) Okay. And here's the end of the story. Here's the kicker to the story. He then says to him, Josh, how many scholarship offers did you have coming out of high school? And Josh Allen says, none. And he says, sit down. Now the whole room's down, right? And the point of the story is, look, great football organizations are not filled with first round draft picks and big success stories. They are filled with people who were cut, traded, fired, undrafted, unoffered. Awesome. It's a great, great story. It is. Sally Jenkins, this is a book that one of the things I, I, every year in my column, which I'm not going to have my column this year in June because I'm taking some time off, but every year, and I'm going to do this this year, um, I recommend books uh, for Father's Day. My whole theory is that, you know, first of all, we don't read enough as a society. And second of all, books are an incredibly good gift because they're fairly cheap, you know, still to this day, and they can enrich lives even if for only a week. And you can take things with you that you learn in this book that you might buy for $28.95. But anyway, I really hope people get your book. And the reason I bring that up is that, you know, the pub date for your book, the publishing date, is June 6th, which is, I think, eight days or so before Father's Day. So I'm really hoping, or it might even be longer than before Father's Day. But whatever it is, I really hope people get it. And here it is again, the right call, what sports teach us about work and life. It's from Gallery Books, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. And uh, there it is. Look at it. Look at that cover. Nice and green. So, uh, Sally, I really want to thank you for joining me on the podcast and and good luck with the book and good luck with your absolutely marvelous career. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. And obviously, you're a must read and a must listen. So it was such an honor to be here. I really appreciate you having me and love talking about this stuff with you. My thanks to everybody for both experiencing this episode of the Peter King Podcast and listening and watching throughout the year. I'll be back in early August after taking a couple of months of a break. And I'll be back in early August and you'll see me from somewhere on my training camp tour. Thanks again for uh, loving and experiencing the Peter King Podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. 
coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.